VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Today we're facing COVID-19. Next year or the year after, I, I think it's unfortunately true, there'll, there'll be another such thing for us all to contend with. And if we don't use this as a, as a chance to really reflect on how better to do all this, and if we lose the opportunity to reflect on that and make changes appropriately, then shame on us. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you for tuning in. As always, I have a question. Are you happy with the internet? Do you think the way it works, the services you can access, are satisfactory? Is the surveillance capitalism model one that you're totally cool with? Or would you be interested in something different? If so, this is the pod for you. On the program, we have John Bruce, who is the co-founder of Inrupt, a startup he set up with a guy you may have heard of. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, you know, the guy who invented the World Wide Web. Berners-Lee has long said publicly that the web has gone a bit pear-shaped, that this footloose, fancy, free space for creativity, for productivity, for free expression has taken a dark turn. He actually called it anti-human. So for the past several years, he has been working at MIT on a solution called SOLID which is a completely novel type of data architecture. And Inrupt is the company he set up to bring Solid to the world. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds here, Solid would allow every person to basically grab hold of their personal data and put it in a pod, one easily accessible repository of all of your stuff. Think of it like a safe to which you hold the only key. And it's up to you to give access to different companies, services, whomever you want. And if it took off, then theoretically, you could charge for access. Cash for data. Or you could allow, say, a financial company to look at all of your financial data. To offer you just the thing you need, truly tailored to you. So kind of better services, a whole new level of personalization, for example. That's the theory anyway. And apparently, Interrupt is getting very close to unleashing this new reality onto the world. I managed to carve out some time with John to talk about what they are up to, and specifically why the coronavirus crisis presents such a unique opportunity, especially as we wrestle with this idea of, in this new COVID world, these coronavirus tracing apps that will soon be installed on all of our phones and presumably be part of our lives for the foreseeable future, really allowing potentially big tech to sink its 
hooks into us even deeper. All very heady stuff. Not least because uh, if they pull it off, the big tech titans will have to figure out how to respond here. Now, of course, odds are stacked against Inrupt, but so that's probably the case for every startup. So anyhow, I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. So here he is, John Bruce, CEO and co-founder of Inrupt. Enjoy. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So I've been kind of following Inrupt, you know, the story so so far as it has gone. I mean, there's been little bits and pieces here and there. And then I know you guys have kind of come out of the shadows a bit more recently. But I also thought it would be really good to talk to you guys now, just given what is happening in the world, particularly around this idea that we need to get out of this pandemic. And one of the ways to do that is to basically co-opt big tech to use their kind of surveillance models for kind of a public tracking, tracing thing to get this pandemic under control. And obviously, there's lots of fears about what a slippery slope that might become, especially if this all this data ends up in the hands of government, etc. What's the plan? Because obviously, you have a, you've been working with Tim Berners-Lee for a while now, no? Yeah, we first met, what, three years ago over dinner? Somebody said to me, how would I like to have dinner with Tim? And who wouldn't? So I did. And I thought if the least I get out of it is an interesting dinner story, then so be it. But, but it, it turned out to be way more than that, actually. I found a man that was, I think, brilliant. I mean, he has a vision for the web that we could have that's not being lived today. And better yet, he knew how to make it so. He knew how to nudge it, give it a mid-course correction. And if done properly, then then maybe, just maybe, if we work hard enough, we can have the web we really should have rather than the web we've ended up with today. So I liked his vision. I loved his passion and his just total commitment to make it so. So what's the, what's the big idea? So imagine a world where all my data is in my control where it's available to me. And organizations don't need to take it away to service me. And developers can build applications using one API where they don't need to know where the data lives. They don't need to know how it's, how it's written uh, on my behalf. They can, they can build an application that could expect to have access to my data under my control and render me a value as a consequence of all that data. Now we get true innovation. Now we can unleash development energy again, like the web originally was. Mm. We can, we, those organizations can, who want to service me can stick to their knitting. They can focus on their core competencies. And I get to enjoy a web that's sure it's more private and it's more secure and so on. But, but I think, more importantly, it's more innovative. My data works for me, not for the vendors. So the, so the big thing here is just that. And so, it doesn't require an overhaul of the web. It doesn't. It does not. This is all built on web specs. Everything we do works the way the web is supposed to work. So it's all the elements of the technology, the way it's architected, it's all to web spec. It's all to already approved specifications that everybody in the world over accepts. So what you're talking about, I think you guys call it like a data, like a data pod. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, everybody will have a pod, maybe more than one pod. 
and in that pod resides your data, and you will grant permission to other users or to applications to to access the data on that pod in order to deliver you value. How would Google and Facebook feel about this? I, I guess, you know, the, the trite answer is you'd have to ask them, but <laughs> I think that, uh, you, you know, interesting business is both hugely capable, massive amounts of resources, and I think that given the opportunity to, to uh, embrace this, they may be worse. I, I, uh, again, I don't want to speak for them, but, but if you consider what their core purpose is, Sure, they make revenue in a particular way, but they need not do that. Either a social media platform on the one hand, or in the case of Google, maybe three or four disparate businesses, all capable, all, yeah. all potent. You know, Google could store your pod for you. But they wouldn't have control over it. Because isn't the, isn't the, basically the architecture of the web today is, you know, it's basically ad-driven. The implied transaction all the time is like you're getting all this stuff for free, and in exchange, we mine your data and send ads based on that. And what you're talking about, as far as I understand, is basically remaking that core transaction. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I continue to live in a world, I've lived in a world for the longest time where if you give me good quality service, I'll, I'll give you value back. So yeah. I'll pay for, you know, a relationship with the vendor wherein I feel I'm being well served. And so I guess, uh, you know, conceptually, would you pay for, a really uh, a valuable service, sure you would. would right. Would you Would you enjoy a relationship with either Google or Facebook where you pay them a, a, a fee to use this? I, I surmise you would. But, I mean, if you talk about the inclusiveness point, would you, though? Because if we're talking about 6, 7 billion people getting onto the web, most people don't have a few extra bucks to pay for that. Ah, uh, but you need to pay in terms of cash. You could have a different relationship with the vendor that's not necessarily related to cash. I mean, you know, on the one, if you just look at the closest example of which, you could imagine a world where you opt in to a relationship with, let's say, Facebook. And you could say, yeah, sure, there's elements of my data I don't mind you having access to. And I actually really do have an active interest in, in some product or service. And I'll electively say, sure, send people who have that kind of product or service my way because I'm interested in engaging with them. And I think most marketeers will tell you that a prospect that, that electively says, I have an interest in your product, is, is a way better interesting prospect than somebody that you profile as a consequence of snippets of information and you match it up and, and you, you, you try to determine, do they have a propensity to purchase? And uh, so, so back to the essence of your point, uh, would people be able to afford to do it? It depends on what the commercial token looks like. I don't think it needs to necessarily be, I will give you dollars to service me. But the relationship could be more equitable. So how would this even evolve, right? Because so today I use you know Google for everything, Google Maps, all that kind of stuff, Facebook, Instagram, etc. They obviously have a ton of information about my life and my daily existence and where I go and what I do and what I search for, etc. If tomorrow I could kind of create a pod, a data pod, does that basically just bring the gates down on all that previous information and going forward is like, I control this and then I have to allow them access to it or make a kind of proactive decision for that or whatever, however my information is sold or tracked around the web? No, I don't think that's how we see it going. I mean, I well, our expectation is that this is going to be a, 
a progression from where we are to where we ultimately want to get to. And, and uh, I don't imagine that anybody, the, 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 real, the real expert society, there are some people, Tim, amongst them who, who use this extensively in a way that you or I would use a dozen other applications. You know, they individually can use solid to do that and more. But it's not ready yet for, for what I would consider to be my kind of use. And uh, right. maybe not your kind of use. The, 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 there's work to do yet ahead of us to get to the point where you will say, you know, I'm going to switch. I'm going to stop using Google and, and, and go to this alternative. And actually, I think in sort of understanding that, Google and Facebook and others have come together in, in a project they call the DTP. The Data What's Transfer that? Project. Okay. And what they've said they're going to do is, is create it such that you can take your data out of Facebook and move it to Google or out of Google and move it to Twitter or out of Twitter and move it to Facebook. And, uh, and I think that's got merit. I mean, obviously it does. It gives users a chance to choose where they want to be served. And this project was announced probably a couple of years ago now, maybe 18 mm. months ago. Um, and we're included in it because one of the options, of course, could be that you can take your data out of any of them and put it in your pot. When I see the world opening up ahead of us in terms of adoption, I don't anticipate that you will one day wake up and say, that's it, I'm going to switch. I think what's much more likely to happen is that you will start to experience relationships with some vendors, some organizations, who service you in innovative ways. Unbeknownst to you, the way they're able to do it is they've provisioned you with a pot. And you haven't explicitly said, I want to buy into the world of solid, I want a pot. What you've basically done is you've said, I enjoy this relationship with you. It gives me value I hadn't experienced before. And, and again, unbeknownst to you, it's, it's running on solid. Can you just explain briefly what Solid is? You know, the history of Solid is an intriguing one, an interesting one, because Tim had been working inside MIT for many years on increasing evolutions of a project that, that ended up being called Solid. Solid was a new way to, to reorient the elements of the web to deliver against this that I've described to you. We're in. Yeah. You have a pod, applications work on your behalf, you control the data, and they can service you without taking your data away to do it. Uh, I'm certainly not doing the project justice, uh, but but that's the absence of, of, of what it's right. to do. And, and that was called Solid. And it had a good deal of attention, both by folks inside MIT and an open, open source community. And that was what Tim described to me over dinner. He said, you know, this is a way where we can just nudge the web in a particularly intriguing way, a simple way, but a quite profound way, and get it to a better place. It feels like more than a nudge. Mm, you know, I, I used to do judo. It was quite fascinating, actually, that, that some big opponents, you just needed to give them the right kind of nudge and good things could happen. <laughs> so, you know, it's... Uh, they could be flat on their back. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to imply that's what we're intending to do, by the way. But, but, but I guess if you apply the right leaders at the right juncture and you do it in, in the right way, then as long as you're committed to it and you execute well and you get a lot of support to do it, then... I think we can give it quite the nudge. Interrupt, as you say, or solid, Tim has been working on this for years, right? Or this, some kind of what this has become. 
where is it in the kind of the the continuum of this becoming ready let's say for prime time for like you know normal kind of man in the street can do this in a pretty easy way where are we in that process well i think you might be surprised how close we are to giving this to men in the street but not by virtue of men in the street electively says yeah you know i want to use solid but rather they experience a different service from one of the principal organizations and and one i can talk about we're under nda and a whole yeah. number of them but, but one i can talk about because they in fact have gone public with it is the work we're doing with the health service in the uk the nhs and that's got huge promise because when one engages with with any of the health providers around the world you know they they again have a very fragmented view of you whoever your principal provider is you know he goes to your gp gp interviews you for five minutes he knows you of old maybe maybe not uh, he has limited access to data about you from a medical perspective and then diagnoses you and off you right. go and that's hugely of course myopic i mean this is the way the system works so so what the NHS is looking to do, and they've, but they've been trying to do this in various ways for a while, is to consolidate all of the data about you as a patient in a form that makes it available to your GP. So when next you go visit with them, you can talk more broadly about all of the things mm. you've experienced and, and so on. And as a step one, I think it's fabulous because if we can prove out, and, and the pilot is already underway, that one can take disparate elements of health data, consolidate it in one view of you and get just that to work, I think it adds huge promise. Put that next to information about your diet, maybe your Fitbit feeds it too, maybe mm-hmm. where you live and, the, and the, you know, the environment you live in, add that into the mix and now we begin to really make sense of health data. And uh, I, I, I'm very excited about what the prospects are for that. And that's just one example. So, so back to your question about men in the street. So men in the street will, will get an opportunity to experience that without even knowing that under the hood is solid. Well, actually, Got more you. particularly, is Inrup's version of solid. But so, for example, the NHS example is, is effectively the NHS kind of proactively making, let's call them health pods for everybody on the system so that when... I go to my GP, they can kind of open it, and it's like all of me is there from a health perspective. Yep. And then imagine we're, we're now put a bit of collaboration around that. Let's say you're uh, an elderly patient. You're generally mm-hmm. stuck in a home. You have a caregiver. You have your family. You have your doctor. And they could all potentially collaborate to your benefit in a very fluid way, but they can't today. Today there's no construct that says, you know, Dad had a really bad bad night. Let me feed that information to his caregiver, and then let's make sure the GP, the doctor, knows about it, and so on. But with solid, you can. If if that patient has a pod, then the communication around that patient could go via the pod, and with appropriate permissioning, individuals who participate in the well-being of that individual can be informed in an appropriate way. Right, and then I want to kind of pivot to what's happening in the world today, but. Just thinking about this kind of the internet, when you think about it as a kind of an ex, you know a bunch of transactions and kind of value being uh, pushed around to various different parties, it does feel like the big guys they are extracting a lot of the value, and it feels like this would be taking that value away and putting it in my hands or yeah the hands of the individual 
big tech. It's big oil. It's kind of, you know, it's the same. It's These are very big, moneyed, powerful organizations. I just don't see why they would be okay with that. Uh, well, I, I mean, you raise a few interesting points in your comment. One is, you know, I think that it's not a zero-sum game, for one. I think, you know, the problem we've got with data at the moment is it doesn't deliver against the value it could have in a whole multitude mm-hmm. of ways. So, you know, your data is most valuable to you, not yeah. to other vendors who've got pieces of it. So so I think that the end result here isn't, you know, we take value out of big vendors and, and spread it amongst ourselves. Not that at all. I think we create value. I think it's new value that we currently don't have. It eludes us all. Uh, for one, for two, I, I don't know that. Again, the the, the big vendors, the, those who are enjoying the relationship they have with the web today, maybe to the you know, the arguable cost of us all. But I, I don't know that I subscribe to that necessarily. But but let's take your posit and, mm-hmm. and assume it to be true. Then you, you know they're vibrant businesses. They're hugely resourced, and it's funny. I was I, I was at IBM. My last company was acquired by IBM, and I spent a couple of really enjoyable years there. And I know they just changed their CEO, Ginny, you know, has been changed. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I reflected on the fact they're over 100 years old as a business. High technology yeah. company, 100 years plus old. It's phenomenal when you think about it. And it's because they've changed. It's, you know, they go through generational changes and they're, they're about to do it again or they are and do it again. So, so you know, does that surmise that Facebook is the Facebook and will they ever have to stay that way? I don't expect that. I mean, smart people, well-resourced, access to capital, and so on. And, and I'm sure they'll change their business. So they, they'll need to evolve. I mean, it's, the world is changing around us day by day, of course. And those businesses that want to prevail are adaptive and agile and change. And so today, those businesses exist on advertising revenue. Of course they do. But that, they need not do that. That kind of uh, leads to kind of where we are today and back to where I started the conversation around big tech is in a really interesting position in the moment in that they're working with governments now, talking to governments about, you know, let's assume that tracking and tracing of the pandemic and how people are adhering to social distancing and when they come in contact potentially with people who have been exposed, et cetera. This is accepted, it seems, that getting this right, this tracking and tracing, is a big part of getting the pandemic under control. But the companies are in a difficult position that, you know, they spent the past few years saying, look, we're not creepy surveillance capitalists. We're, you know, we're responsible stewards of your information, blah, 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 blah. But the whole conceit of them kind of trying to help out here is showing exactly how much they know about us in a way that even though they've kind of made some tools available to give you access to your own data, most people don't just quite understand the extent to which we are followed around, whether it's Google Maps, Facebook, etc. Do you see this time as a kind of a potential moment where you talk about nudges earlier, where it does nudge the industry in a new direction, possibly either through public pressure of a kind of an awakening of like, oh, wow, this is really amazing how much these companies know about me and I'm not super comfortable with that, or worries about how the government might get involved, et cetera. I mean, do you see this as a kind of a, a moment for of change, potentially, a kind of catalyzing moment? I do. I mean, I do if we're sensible about it. 
with our modest resources, we're trying to have somewhat, some little bit to say in that. But, but uh, yeah, absolutely, I do. When you think about the fact that all this data exists after, I mean, the data, I watch the presidential briefs each day, you know, the, the news updates each day. It's fascinating that the majority of the challenge is finding the data. It exists. But, you know, at one stage, the COVID-19 tests were being faxed around and about. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous when you stop to think about the implications of that. But here we are. We live on the web. Certainly half the world's population. We live on the web. It would be trivial for us to offer up information that would inform how our societies should react. And yet we don't because we're all fearful of the implications of that. I don't think uh, there are many organizations we don't trust to take our health data away. And so, so yeah, I do think that big tech has got itself in a bit of a bind. You know, they, they've managed to demonstrate that perhaps there are trust models that aren't consistent with how people want to act. And, and it's a good opportunity to do things different. I would be happy for my data to be used in the context of societal good, just as long as it, when the panic is over, when the p pandemic subsides, I get the chance to revert that, right? I get the chance to say, no, I'm done now. You know, you needed it for a process, it's done. No longer can you have access to it. But of course, that's not the way the web's configured today. It's tough to take your data back once it's away. It's away, notwithstanding GDPR and the like. You know, uh, you know, I think it is, it is what it is. So the notion that I have access to data, I'll make elements of that data available, again, for societal good in an easy way uh, that benefits us all, just as long as I get to change my mind as appropriate, uh, I think that's, a, that's definitely where we, we need to head. Today we're facing COVID-19. Next year or the year after, I, I think it's unfortunately true that there'll be another such thing for us all to contend with. And if we don't use this as a, as a chance to really reflect on how better to do all this, and if we lose the opportunity to reflect on that and make changes appropriately, then shame on us. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How many people is interrupt right now? Uh, 20 odd. I lose cat because we add them bit by bit, but there's about 24 of us. And there's a, a number of outsourced companies we're working with to do particular types of work. And then there's the open source community who we, we work with and I lose track of how many folks there are in the community because it keeps growing, but but there's certainly 
into the thousands now, I think. Not tens of thousands, but I think there's a, an active and vibrantly growing community, open source community, and they're working on right. applications. Yeah, so I guess that's my point, is that little, I'm gonna, I'll, my words, little interrupt 20-something people. Do you have confidence you actually can make a dent in that kind of that change to kind of reorient how we think about the web? And really, I mean, what you're talking about is basically how the whole commercial internet works. I do. I really, really do. I've been building businesses for 20-some years, and, and I guess along the way developed some particular kinds of skills. Uh, if you apply them appropriately, then maybe just maybe you can make a significant difference. I've, I've been fortunate. My last company, as an example, we, we made a new market in cybersecurity. You know, we, we were much bigger than 20-odd than people when we did it. I think if applied at the right time with the right plan, I think you can make a huge difference. And, and actually, when I reflect, though I can't share over much about it, suffice to say that the pilots we're working on right now they're tens of millions of users. They're not, they're not modest in scale. They're huge yeah. in ambition. They're far-reaching. And, and they, each and every one of them have a very explicit use case in mind. The, the, the intention in the first instance is not to create a new world overnight. I mean, we, one has to be practical. So in the first instance, the, the expectation I have, the plan we're operating against says... Massive organizations, if they adopt this to service their constituents in particular ways, results in fairly significant distribution of solid. And then, once distributed, we can provide additional applications, not just INRA, but the open source developers, the ecosystem that's starting to build around us. They can offer up additional value to those self-same users. So, so I, I wouldn't think of it in the context of 20 people messed against you know the, uh, <laughs> the the vast numbers of these big tech silos i think of it more in terms of if we can spark something if we can just set the fire alight a little maybe just maybe and i'm i'm not generally an overt optimist but i'm fairly convinced we're about to do it with with the right execution and the right support from partners you betcha I believe we can make a difference. I absolutely am convinced we can make a difference. And I know Tim feels this, and, and the rest of the team, as we assemble it, similarly feels that. You know, I, uh, I was excited that we added Bruce Schneier. Yeah. Very well regarded, for all the right reasons, cybersecurity expert. He's now in the team. He's helping define the security model for all this. Uh, the, the chap we hired in London to build it, Emmett, he's very familiar with building massively scalable, globally deployed applications. And the privacy chap we hired in uh, New York, Darby, again, he's an expert in his field for digital rights. So, so it, modest in numbers, but I think the right kind of folks who were working with the partner that we're working with, both people who intend to deploy it and technology vendors who are supporting us in, our, in what we're trying to do. I, it won't be an overnight phenomenon. We've got a lot of work to do ahead of us. But, but I think that the, the mission that says, look, we can have a web that we really want, but we have to work for it. I think that resonates around and about. I really do. I think that people, when they hear that, they think, yeah, you know, this is worth working for. Because if we can make it happen, then we're in a, all of us in a way better place. Right. So it's in a way, going back to COVID-19, you know, the, the famous quote from 
Rahm Emanuel, you know, Barack Obama's former chief of staff, you know, don't ne never waste a crisis. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that applies here? Well, I don't know that it's all about the crisis necessarily, but we certainly are. Could, you know, the frustration I know the team feels is we feel so relevant, but not yet ready. So, mm. you know, the technology needs more work to get to the point where we could say, yep, deploy this across all your citizenship. It's only a matter of months, but still they're critical months. So, uh, yeah, I do. I think that the, we all face a crisis, but if we're, if we're sensible about how we use the opportunity to get better, then it's a real turning point for us. Right. How are you funded? Or who funds you? Yeah, well, we sit with a really healthy balance sheet, as the expression goes. We, we uh, didn't take money from the classic. I know you're in Silicon Valley, and I spent many years there uh, and enjoyed great relationships with classic venture capital firms. And, and we're not funded by folks generally who fit that profile. So there's a combination of boutique investors who really have a belief in the mission and aren't bound by fund horizons. So individuals. Well, more than individuals. I mean, uh, uh, you know, our, our lead investor was a company over here on the west, on the east coast called Glasswing. A stellar operation, small, boutique, very highly focused, and, uh, and great people to work with. They're not bound by, you know, the need to turn a result to the limiteds in X period of time. And they're one such example. So, so we have uh, people in Europe are invested. Somebody in Asia is invested. But again, not not in the profile you'd normally imagine for. You know, classic venture capital. I didn't want to be bound by that. I mean, I, well, this is my sixth startup, and I've enjoyed a modest amount of success along the way. You know, uh, three of them were acquired, and, I, and I've enjoyed great relationships with venture capital firms, fabulous venture capital firms. They're sort of data-driven. I mean, the the you know, one finds oneself chasing revenue in a particularly intriguing way, and I didn't want to be bound by that with this company, and I wanted to to work on it with a bunch of people who, like me, believed in this and, and felt, of course, that they could get a return for their, for their limited partners and so on, for their investors. But, but we weren't chasing that. We were not, I have no plans for revenue that me and I succeed or fail over the next little while. We have a balance sheet that takes us to a place in time where we can achieve our goals without being driven by that. The notion of I have to make X amount of dollars by quarter end else. And just going back to your, your other point around, you know, you're kind of months away. Just trying to understand what that means. You're months away from what? You know, the uh, Solid Project was a fabulous effort built on uh, a technology stack, which was great for developers to test out hypotheses. And that's been around, that's been going since like 2015, I think I read. Yeah, that's right. What we've done as Inrupt is we've built an enterprise great version of it and it's about to go to alpha we've been working with some proof concepts and pilots who've been very helpful in helping you know helping inform the product development and it's about to be released as alpha so when i say we're a few months away it's in the context of let's get to ga which is i would think around september which GA. Point, um, uh, general availability so um, okay wherein we go through alpha which is what we're about to do then we'll go through beta and we'll make it generally available. So, so when I say a few months, it's, it's somewhat to do with making sure that based on our projections, we know this is going to scale massively as a technology. We're mm. now we're about to test it.
do you have a sense of in an ideal world how long it could be before i could like i don't know download inrupts app and be like you know what i'm taking all my data and i'm putting it in my pod and then i'm going to kind of dole it out as i see fit or allow access as i see fit well, I, I think if you're a, a reasonably educated computer user, you know, technologist, then before the end of the year, you won't, I don't think you'll be using an, in, I know you won't be using an interrupt app. You'll be using an app that's developed by somebody else. And I see many examples of that now in the open source community. We're tracking something like 30 odd applications okay. that, that are being built. And and they, they're not there to serve all purposes. They have a you know, they, they have an explicit definition of a use case they're trying to deliver against, and yeah. they're using this technology to do it. So, so it, depending on what your lifestyle looks like, you know, if you're a fitness fitness fanatic, or you, in the case of the NHS, if you're a citizen of the UK, then there's a few thousand citizens of the UK before the end of the year are out, will have this in their hands. Again, as field trials for hopefully fuller deployment, but... But end-user apps is not where Interrupt's focused at the moment. What I'm focused on, what the company's focused on, is helping massive organizations evaluate this technology with explicit use cases in mind in order to get to the point where they deploy it at scale. And do you see this ultimately leading to a world potentially where, and I know this has been something that's been talked about before, especially in the crypto world of like, you know, I get paid for my data, literally money in my hand or in my bank account, you know, because I'm giving access to you, company X, to my data so you can send me ads or whatever, but I'm getting, I have truly skin in the game and I'm getting actually paid for my data. Do you see that as an endpoint here? No, I, I don't think it's an endpoint. It's certainly a, a, you know, an attribute of where we want to get to. It says that for those of you who want to serve their data up for, for, cash, uh, sure, there'll be an opportunity to do that. But I, I believe what's more important, though, isn't necessarily that you can give your data away for money. It's about the kind of things you'll be able to do mm. that are otherwise impossible that will deliver you true value, help you and have a better enrichment to your life, like, like healthcare. I mean, let's say we could really get after that as one example. So you enjoy a healthier life. And the implications of that are hugely significant for you. They're hugely significant for whoever your healthcare providers are because now, instead of attending to your illnesses, they're helping you live longer and, and live a healthier life, less of a burden on the health infrastructure and so on. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fairly significant, well, it's a hugely yeah. significant amount of value. So, sure, you know, I think there's a, and we've seen evidence of this and we know of people who are working on the notion of micro tokens, you know, pieces of my data in return for money. Uh, yeah, we've also seen people saying, well, you know, if I'm a true author of real content and I can ensure that that content remains mine and under my control, maybe just maybe people will pay me for access to it. So, so you can think of examples in the media space like that, of course. You know, I guess if the truism still applies that money makes the web go around somewhat, that, then there'll be a measure of that. But, but I think we'd rather believe, and I really do believe this is true, it's what you will be able to do in your life as a consequence of this, that's the true value, not the fact that you get dollars per month for allowing right. others access to it. Because it, it gets back to this idea of being able to provide to whatever, you could have a health pod, you could have a money pod, whatever it may be, you can kind of 
allow companies or providers you choose to have access to all of that, they get a m more complete picture of what you're talking about and can provide better services. Exactly right. And of course, what precludes them from doing that today is, prevents them from doing that today is, in some instances, they can't get access to that data because you either prudently don't allow them it or the regula regulators prevent them from having access to it appropriately. And so if you are assured that that data remains under your control, and the principal provider can say, yep, you know, we're going to render value to you in a new and innovative way, but we don't need to take your data away to do it. Now we get real right. innovation. It's putting it all in one place, and it's kind of almost in a way like for viewing only. Like you can check all this off, but you can't take it. Right. I, I don't know if you remember. You, way back, when I first got into computers, I used to have a machine, and I had two disk drives, and in one disk drive I had a, my data and in the other disk drive I had my application and the application mm -hmm. loaded in at RAM and pulled data off the disk and rendered the results on the screen. It's somewhat like that. I mean, it says you don't need to have applications and data intermingled in the way they are today. You can right. have clear differentiation between the two and get great value as a consequence of it. Why interrupt? Why that name? Oh, innovative disruption. You know, I don't know we'll win awards for the name, but but anyway, it serves a purpose. <laughs> well, you can tell you're not in Silicon Valley because if you were, then you wouldn't have like a U in there. You know, we like to kind of remove the vowels to make it look cooler. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the least of my worries at the moment is the company name. We've got enough things to, <laughs> to contend with without worrying about the word in And that is all the time we have. I want to thank John for taking the time. I would love to have my own data pod. I'm kind of still not totally clear how this would all kind of come to pass, but I'm excited that they're trying. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and hope you're staying safe. And that is all we have for this week. Please take a moment, review the pod, rate and review it. It always helps. Trust me, it really does. Also, if you haven't yet, subscribe to the Sunday Times because... That allows us to keep doing this type of stuff. Um, as you know, these are tough, tough times for uh, for every industry, but not least newspapers. They're closing all over the place. It's crazy. Stay safe. Stay sane. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.